Welcome to the gala annual Nina Totenberg edition of It's All Politics from NPR News. I'm Nina Totenberg. <laughs> and I'm gala. <laughs> and it's okay and to the say Supreme that. Supreme Court says that's and just it's okay fine. to say that. It's you just know, fine. Ron, I think it's amazing the fact that they threw out the Defense of Marriage Act and Bang. It's and, out of here. And now it's okay that we can do the podcast. We we don't need this excuse to get together anymore. We don't. But it was a gala day, a gala week, a historic week. That's right. It was also a historic week for affirmative action yep. and for voting rights. Voting rights. And really much more for voting rights than for affirmative action because that case was more of a punt. They basically said, ah, let's have the lower courts take another look at this Texas program for affirmative action. We've got problems with it, but they should be able to fix it according to the formula we've given them in the past, or at least the language we've given them in the past. But let's talk about voting rights because that is, I mean, when you think of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, I always think of Fire hoses and dogs. Right. We're talking about the Selma to Montgomery march, uh, culminating in the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which followed, of course, the 64 Civil Rights Let's Act. Let's not forget the murder of civil rights of workers down in the Deep South. I mean, this was all part of the combination of the 64 Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And the heart of this, in many ways, was the Section 4 in the 65 Act that said these states and these locations within these other states uh, have a history of bad behavior and a history of uh, racial discrimination. And going forward, all of these places are going to have to go to the Justice Department before they make any sorts of changes whatsoever to their voting laws. Now, the Supreme Court, on a 5-4 decision, said that things have changed. The country has changed. While there is still discrimination, and that should be eliminated, but no states should be singled out. Now, Democrats will point out that while maybe things may have changed, the fact is states are still passing voter ID laws that could suppress turnout of blacks, of, of the poor. There are also instances of racial gerrymandering where districts are drawn by many white legislatures to benefit white-slash-Republican electoral gains. Well, that's right, although at the same time, a lot of those have been abetted by a lot of uh, black and Hispanic legislators who like the idea that there are districts being created that are going to automatically elect people who are black or Hispanic. Can I just, th- th- just, can I just interrupt you for one second? Because that's always fascinating to me. We always talk about... When you think of the rise in African-American congressional districts coming out of 1992, basically it was it was the end of the white Democrats in the South. That's right. The Republicans would get their districts, the African-Americans and the minorities would get their districts, and everybody would be happy except the white Democrats. Well, and the Democrats in general, in the sense that they lost control of the House of Representatives yeah. in the very next election in 1994. That was the big Newt Gingrich surge. And if you look at the current House Republican majority, it's base is really in the South, where you have the black vote concentrated in a very few districts, and you have the white vote dominating virtually everywhere else, which means in this era, in now times, Republican voters. And I'm sure it didn't escape notice that almost immediately after the Supreme Court ruling on the Voting Rights Act, the Texas legislature said, okay, our voter ID law that we passed is now into law. I mean, in other words, it no longer faces scrutiny from the federal government. Which it was getting. Exactly. We should make the point that voter ID laws are seen by many Americans, certainly by Republicans, as ballot integrity measures. This is attempting to deal with what they see as the large problem of vote fraud and people voting multiple times or people voting who shouldn't be voting, people voting who 
aren't citizens. If you carry a driver's license or some kind of ID to get on a plane, why can't you carry that to vote? In that argument. In that argument. argument, Because the Constitution defines voting as something that is not a privilege like getting on an airplane. Uh, It defines it as a basic constitutional right of being a citizen, and uh, you should not be forced to constantly prove yourself to have that right. This was at the heart of another case that the Supreme Court ruled on earlier this month on the Arizona case where they said that they were were asking too much uh, to ask people to bring documents with them every time they came to vote if they were willing to sign a federal waiver saying, uh, I aver at the penalty of perjury that I am a United States citizen. All of these things are individually controversial in their own right. But what has been done here is the elimination of the business end, if you will, the the mechanism by which the Voting Rights Act of 1965 has always had meaning. And that's the reaction you hear from a lot of Democrats, none more so than John Lewis, the venerable uh, civil rights worker, now, of course, a member of Congress from the state of Georgia. Today, the Supreme Court stuck a dagger in the heart of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. They're saying, in effect, that history cannot repeat itself But I said, come and walk in my shoes. As Justice Ginsburg described in her dissent, the history is relevant because voting rights have been given in this country and they have been taken away. Now, the court was very explicit in saying, and Chief Justice Roberts, who wrote the opinion, was quite clever in saying, if Congress doesn't like the Supreme Court intervening here and striking down this landmark law, which, by the way, was reapproved, reauthorized by Congress in 2006 by overwhelming votes unanimously in the Senate, if they don't like us intervening here, all they have to do is write a new Section 4 that's more up-to-date, that doesn't use 1972 voter data as the uh, 2006 reauthorization did. Just give us a new penalty box. Maybe put everybody in it. Maybe don't put anybody in it. Maybe give us a new definition of a state bringing down this kind of Department of Justice scrutiny. Well, presumably, uh, that kind of language would be written in the House Judiciary Committee. But for now, Bob Goodlap, the uh, Republican from Virginia, who is the chairman of House Judiciary, said that the Supreme Court decision was basically based on fairness. Quite frankly, I think there's an element of fairness in the court saying that uh, you can't treat some uh, jurisdictions differently than others in how you judge whether or not arrangements for allowing people to vote are fair. And I think that's important for us to study what the court says, but I think it's also very important for us to make sure that the public understands that this in no way overturns our laws prohibiting discrimination in the opportunity of people to vote. That's protected by the 15th Amendment in the United States Constitution. It just overturns the mechanism by which that's been assured with respect to nine entire states and parts of others. You wonder what the long-term fallout for the Republican Party would be. Right now, of course, they do control many of these legislatures in the South. Of course, back in 1965, there was no such thing as a Republican in the Deep South, except maybe John Tower in Texas. That was really it for for much of the Deep South. But, I mean, as the demographics in Georgia, in Texas, uh, in many, many other states uh, are changing, uh, do the Republicans do everything they can to solidify their power, try to 
create more and more Republican districts, or do they realize that time is no longer on their side and they realize that they have to accommodate what's going to be a tremendous change for them? But just as there was a 5-4 decision in the court about Voting Rights Act, there was also a 5-4 decision on same-sex marriage and gay rights that was also historic. Uh, this is fascinating. Two real landmarks back-to-back. And in this case, the 5-4 to four majority, as you say, went the other way with Justice Kennedy, Anthony Kennedy, once again on the 10th anniversary of the time he wrote the opinion that in a 5-4 to four decision struck down anti-sodomy laws and essentially ended the prohibition of gay sex in the United States. On that 10th anniversary, here he was writing the opinion in another 5-4 to four saying the United States government cannot penalize you because your marriage is a gay marriage as opposed to a heterosexual marriage. This was front page headlines all across the country and deservedly so. Of course, we've seen many state legislatures try to implement same-sex marriage or marriage equality, while many voters in many states have also rejected that, although we've seen some kind of a change in 2012 where voters have moved the other way. But um, I just think it was interesting that we always talk about Anthony Kennedy as a swing vote, and this is a perfect example. If he is seen as a moderate conservative, well, here he was joined in the 5-4 decision by the other four liberals of the court, and the minority in this case were the four staunch conservatives. And, of course, the four staunch conservatives, led in this case by Antonin Scalia, immediately denounced the action of the majority as an overreach, as intervening in what Congress ought to have the right to do exclusively, and making many of the same arguments, or at least a mirror image of those arguments that had been made with respect to the Voting Rights Act going the other way uh, just 24 hours earlier. Well, Edie Windsor, who is the plaintiff in the case, who brought the Doma case to the Supreme Court, this is her reaction on Wednesday. To all of the gay people and their supporters who have cheered me on, thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, I'm sure Thea is thanking you too. Not only does a much larger portion of the of, the, of our country, of our straight and the straight members of our country, see us differently, okay, as just people who live and love and bring up kids who will play with their kids, but our own community has come out and seen each other and loved each other in a way that makes me courageous and proud and joyous every day. Of course, the reaction was much different among many House Republicans. Let's hear from a few. Shall we? We see a Supreme Court that seems out of control. The desires of adults are not more important than the needs of children. We have defined marriage to be that relationship between a man and a woman for the best interest of those children. The foundational unit of our society, which is marriage, that is something that God created. That is something that God will define. The Supreme Court, though they may think so, have not yet arisen to the level of God. What we now have today is a holy quintet who goes against the laws of nature and nature's God. That, of course, was the voice of Randy Weber of Texas uh, first, then Tim Wahlberg of uh, Michigan, then, uh, as I'm sure the listener knows, Michelle Bachman of Minnesota, followed by Louis Gohmert of Texas. Okay, what was your first reaction when you heard all those quotations? Honestly? Yeah. Uh, my, my honest was that we picked the craziest of the bunch on okay, purpose. Okay, but I, I, and I really do appreciate your saying that because I know a lot of people think that's what's going on in the media. But here's the truth. The truth is if you search through the people who went to the mic, the people who got in front of cameras looking for something that sounds substantially different from the quotes we just used from a Republican – 
You're not going to find it. Yeah, that, that's what's interesting. Either the mainstream Republicans or the majority Republicans kept quiet because I think things are changing. I think there's a change in the country. They know it. And I think that Republicans, for the most part, would rather have kept quiet this week because they see that the times are they are a changing. Either join it or get out of the way. I think a lot of Republicans get out of the way. There are some conservatives, however, as you say, who made a point of saying uh, we're not being bowled over that quickly. I think the John Boehners of the world, the Eric Cantors of the world, the leaders of the House, while they came out and said they didn't like the decision, they were deeply disappointed in it, and they felt that the conversation would go on in the country, the debate, the controversy would go on about gay marriage, and that they believed the voters should decide all those things, good things to say, then they kind of shut up. And they left the stage to all the people who feel it necessary to take this into moral debate, to take it into religious debate, and to really cast it in highly theological terms. And those people feel that's necessary from their own convictions and also feel it's necessary in many cases from their concern about what might happen in their next primary election because there's a lot of this feeling in the Republican Party and you can wind up with a primary that can really cost you. I think you make a very good point in saying that many of these Republicans in the House are more fearful of a challenge, a primary challenge from the right than they are from pressure from the leadership, the leadership of John Boehner and Eric Cantor and Kevin McCarthy, the whip. And we saw that not only in the reaction to the Supreme Court decisions, but also the defeat of the farm bill on the House floor and the blocking so far on the House floor of the upcoming immigration bill. That's right. We do see the immigration bill moving in the Senate. In fact, in a key vote uh, that was held this week, the Senate adopted an amendment that uh, is going to spend a great deal more money to try to beef up border enforcement on the Mexican border. They're calling it a border surge, uh, obviously referring back to Iraq. But we are trying in some way or another to placate those who believe that the new immigration law, if it becomes law, would be a big magnet in the way that the 1986 immigration overhaul proved in the end to be a big magnet to more illegal immigration. So you had two Republican senators. You had Bob Corker of Tennessee. You had John Hoven of North Dakota. And they passed this amendment. As you say, it would double the U.S. Border Patrol. It would have 700 miles of of fencing across the border. They would have drone surveillance. And they put all these things in the amendment. I think their goal was to change some minds in the House. and said, look, this is a very border security first measure. And yet... It You're looks, not going to move any votes no, it's in the not, It's not moving they, they, at all. They, The bill is going to be passed. In the Senate. In the Senate. But... It's dead on arrival in the House. I think you're right. So all they can hope for is that the House will pass some version of its own. It doesn't even matter what it says. It just has to be about immigration and deal with some of these same issues a little bit. And then they can go to conference between the House and the Senate. This is an ancient process by which they compose the differences between the bills. And what comes back at the end of that conference, probably late this year, is probably more like the Senate bill than the House bill. And in the end... John Boehner has to make a decision, having allowed the House to pass the kind of immigration bill his House Republicans want, then when something quite different comes back from the conference with the Senate, does he take that to the floor to be passed with some House Republicans, but mostly House Democrats? Well, not not according to what Boehner has said in the past, saying he would only take it to the House floor if he has a majority of the Republicans. That's the original House bill. Not to, You're not talking about the conference. But, but, but typically when there's a conference and a conference report comes back, The leaders stand back, raise their hands, and say, well, this is a conference report. This is different. Uh, We're going to let this come to the floor because so much effort has been expended and everyone in the country is expecting us to do this. So we'll put it on the floor and see what happens. John Boehner knows that could be passed. 
largely with Democratic votes, and with the votes of those House Republicans who can read the demography of the country as a whole and don't want to be cast as the anti-immigrant party. I'm not convinced John Boehner is getting high remarks from his caucus about his leadership, but one person who's even getting more beaten up by his fellow Republicans is Marco Rubio. Once upon a time, we thought that the passage of the immigration bill would be the stepping stones for Marco Rubio to 2016. Marco Rubio, elected as a Tea Party darling in 2010, now he's he's the establishment. He's the amnesty. He's the traitor. And you're seeing all over the blogosphere and even in conservative magazines that Marco Rubio is not one of us anymore. And that's pretty remarkable. Well, but he always had to deal with this conundrum that he was a hero to the Tea Party at one time when he first was rising in the state of Florida as a statewide politician. But he is also seen as representative of Latino Republicans everywhere, a Cuban immigrant son, and someone who, if he's going to run for president, is supposed to help the Republicans leap this great demographic gap that they're facing. And so he had to deal with the contradictions that that implies between immigration law that his Latino Republicans like and immigration law that Tea Party people like. Everything you said makes complete sense, and I think it's going to fall on deaf ears if he should decide to run for president in Iowa, in New Hampshire, in the early states. And you've seen people like Rand Paul, who made a very big deal about why he will not support this bill, but here's the reasons why. I think Rand Paul seemed to be what the... 2016 Republican Party electorate may be looking for. Or maybe Ted Cruz. Well, exactly. But in other words, the people who were talking about somehow bridging the differences, it's one thing for the Republican establishment to say, we've got to do X, Y, and Z to reach out to voters to get a majority of the vote if we ever want to be elected to the White House again. And it's another to look at those who will show up at the polls in the 2016 nominating contest. And I suspect they'll be far more conservative than they were in 2012. You know, short-term thinking against long-term thinking in politics, that's usually not a fair fight. Most politicians think in short terms. And some politicians, some Republicans are going to look at the results of the Massachusetts state uh, special election. For a lot of Republican politicians, an ideal candidate emerged in the Massachusetts race to try to take this Senate seat away from the Democrats. Of course, John Kerry had held it since 1984. And this is a perfect opportunity to find a guy like Gabriel Gomez, who's a former Navy SEAL, who's got an MBA, uh, I believe from Harvard Business School. What a perfect guy to get out there and run against some sort of, well, let's face it, retread from 1976 and Ed Markey, who's been around for 36 years in Congress and finally moving on to get his chance at the Senate. It was a perfect opportunity. How did he do this weekend? He got 45% of the vote. Well, which, that's not too terrible. Well, Mitt Romney lost Massachusetts by 23 points. Uh, Gabriel so Gomez only lost by 10. I think everybody was so blinded or enamored with 2010 and Scott Brown, the Scott Brown election for the Ted Kennedy seat, that they said, well, maybe we, you know, if we get the same kind of candidate and the same kind of dynamic will reappear. Of course, for millions of reasons that we've talked on the podcast, that was not going to happen. And this is Massachusetts. It's like, you know, Massachusetts will elect an Ed Markey, even though he's not maybe the most exciting guy in the world. But one thing we should say about it is that uh, Gabriel Gomez only got about 525,000 votes, I believe. And Scott Brown, when he won the seat in a special election, got over a million. Yes, but here's another way of looking at it. If Scott Brown got over a million, I think uh, Ed Markey got about 800,000. 
So, I mean, Scott Brown got far more votes than Ed Markey did. And another thing I was going to say is that the number that stuck out most in my mind was the fact that only 23% of the electorate showed up. There was a lot of excitement in 2010. There was a lot of anger and Obamacare and Obama and all that stuff. And Scott Brown had a great story. But there was a 54% turnout in 2010, only 23%, 24% in this week's election. I don't know what the message is there. I mean, I don't think that hurt Gomez or helped Gomez, but the point is that nobody seemed to care. In the end, there really wasn't that much sizzle to the Gomez candidacy. And, well, on the Democratic side, of course, you had Mr. Excitement. I am a son of Malden, but I do not go to occupy a seat in the Senate. I go there to stand for you, to speak for you, to seek change that lifts up your families and your future, and to everyone in this state, regardless of how you voted. I say to you tonight, this is your seat in the United States Senate. I'll tell you who's got some sizzle right now. New York's former congressman, and possibly future mayor, Anthony Weiner? There's a new poll by Marist College that came out now all along. Christine Quinn, who is the speaker of the New York City Council, uh, who, if elected, would be the city's first female mayor. She had long been seen as the front runner, leading in all the polls. Yeah. But, but the new Marist College poll has Anthony Weiner up 25 to 20. I've seen other polls that show that it's a dead heat. Yeah, but I mean, the primary is not until September 10th, but for all the ridicule and all that stuff that Anthony Weiner has gone through. Right here on this podcast. <laughs> exactly. Um, for now, at least, Anthony Weiner is a serious candidate, uh, which one would not have thought uh, not that, that long ago. And we always stand back and say, whatever the voters want, that's what the voters ought to have. And speaking of sizzle, uh, we saw a very uh, uh, fascinating event going on in the Texas state legislature this week in Austin. This was amazing, uh, where a single woman, Wendy Davis, a state senator, was able through an 11-hour solo filibuster to hold off an attempt by the Republicans there in the state Senate to essentially restrain, almost ban, the right of abortion in Texas. Uh, they wanted to uh, ban abortions after 20 weeks right. and also make it much more difficult uh, for clinics and uh, for people to you know find clinics and so on. I mean, it was one of the most restrictive laws we've seen attempted. And there are very restrictive uh, uh, filibuster laws in Texas as well. In other words, uh, Wendy Davis couldn't go to the bathroom, couldn't, couldn't sit down. She couldn't even lean on a desk. There was some indication that some of her supporters were going to give her a back brace. None of that was, I mean, they're very, very tough. And the fact is, 12 midnight was coming up. Um, but with procedural objections, the Republicans stopped the filibuster at about 1130 or so. And the Republicans were demanding a vote. But because there was a commotion, there were people in the gallery screaming, you know, let her speak, let her speak, uh, stand with Wendy. There was so much commotion that by the time the Republicans finally got a vote and they passed it by a 19 to 10 margin, it was after midnight. So in other words, the bill was not passed. Governor Rick Perry is going to have to call another special session where ultimately they think they are going to pass it. Ultimately they will. But for a brief shining moment, uh, Wendy Davis was a big hero for abortion rights supporters. That's right. And she probably is going to have something of a future beyond her current office in Texas and possibly because of all the other changes that are going on in Texas primarily demographic changes, which are going to make the state eventually, probably sometime in the next decade or so, a more competitive state instead of one of the reddest in the union. You know, there's already Hillary Clinton and Wendy Davis bumper stickers for 2016. That's how fast this has taken off. There you have it. And 
We are also going to have next week a series of stories on NPR about Texas and 2020 and how the state might be changing. And, of course, all of these events in the state were staged largely to uh, facilitate and advertise the coming of that NPR series. That's very nice of them. One thing we will not have next week is a July 4th edition of It's All Politics from NPR. We will be taking next week off in deference to our national holiday the Independence Day, the 4th of July. I was thinking of Yom Kippur. That's not the national holiday? And we will see you again the week thereafter. And that's it for this week's political podcast. You can follow NPR's political coverage at npr.org slash politics. I'm Ron Elving. And I'm Ken Rudin. The podcast is produced by Bracton Booker and edited by Kathy Shaw. Join us again in two weeks for It's All Politics from NPR.